What do you think are the most important moments in the life of Jesus? You might say it's his birth. I mean, after all, we make a lot about that at Christmas. Or maybe it was his baptism or the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, You might think of the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water. There were a lot of big moments. But I think today we encounter one of the most important moments in the life of Jesus. Big moments in life don't come advertised as big moments. Most of the time, they sneak up on you and are relatively unseen. It's a big moment in the life of Jesus because uh, just like you, the people that you surround yourself with are the people who determine your destiny. The people who Jesus surrounded himself meant an awful lot to the future and the reputation of Jesus. And so I suspect that with the exception of the cross and resurrection, there's probably not a bigger day in the life of Jesus than the one we'll read about this morning. Because this is the day that changed the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. It was the day that other people joined him. Up until now, he had been a one-man authoritative healing show. But all of a sudden now, there were going to be some other people who were in the game together with Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, and I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, here is a simple list of the people that Jesus entrusted his ministry to. Jesus here assembled his team of 12 very ordinary men who exercised his authority to carry out his mission. So Jesus passed the baton, the baton of ministry, to 12 men, and he gave them the authority to carry that mission out. Verse 1 says, He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is one of those hidden moments that changed the world. If this moment doesn't happen, nothing happens. It's this moment when other people owned what Jesus was doing in the world. It's this moment that 
these 12 people change from consumers to distributors. It's this moment that the first generation of Christians really was born. The interesting thing is that this moment will happen in every subsequent generation because the baton will always need to be passed. Who passed it to you? To whom will you pass it? What is it that actually gets passed? All of that is what's happening here. This is a big day. And I think that Jesus probably knew this was a big day. It didn't look big. But Luke records Jesus praying all night before he made this choice. Because he knew it would be an important decision. He knew that he would forever be identified with the people who are in this list. Which if you read the list like I read the list, that's a frightening prospect. And so Luke records it this way. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And then immediately, he names the 12 disciples. It was important enough for Jesus to pray all night over before he called them. Mark simply records that Jesus called them so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That's the essence of discipleship, to be with Jesus. And so these 12 were called to be with Jesus and then they were sent out to be on his mission. And the cool thing is that he didn't just send them out on a vacation. He didn't send them out to do VBS. He gave them authority to carry on the ministry that he had been doing. The very thing that Jesus had been doing, now they were to do. Uh, if you look just up a few verses, you'll notice in chapter 9, verse 35, that Jesus went throughout all the villages cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And what did he do? He gave them then authority to heal every disease and every affliction and to cast out um, unclean spirits. And he left off the first part, the teaching in the synagogues and the proclamation of the gospel, I think because those are the things that you might say are easy to do. Those are the things that you would expect them to pick up on their own. It's these other things that maybe are a little more spectacular that uh, Jesus wanted to say, here you have authority for these things as well. I think the, the, the pro proclamation and the ministry in the synagogues were implicitly included as Jesus uh, reiterated uh, his um, ministry and gave it to them and gave them authority to carry it out. Jesus, in effect, said, these are the 12 that I'm sending. These are the 12 that I'm vesting my authority in. And you may remember, I hope you remember, 
that the authority of Jesus has been a major theme in the book of Matthew. It is described, uh, it, authority describes how the world sees Jesus. They see him as one with authority. Uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, the, the notable thing about the Sermon on the Mount was the authority of Jesus. But then as it continues, you'll notice as well that uh, as Jesus heals people and as Jesus uh, touches them and changes their lives, the, the thing that people notice about him is his authority. In chapter 9, it starts off by Jesus healing the paralytic. And authority is mentioned twice there. Jesus forgave his sins and then he healed him so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And so it, it would have been a different ministry if Jesus had sent them off without authority. It would not have been his ministry. And so he vested them with authority and he sent them out to um, cast out unclean spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And then when we get to, chapter, to verse 2, you'll notice there's just a roster. There's just a list of people and Jesus passes the baton to <laughs> a roster of the most improbable runners that you could imagine. It says the names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, why would we just give us this list? What were we supposed to get out of the list? Why was there 12 and not more? You'll notice that uh, in verse 1, he called his 12 disciples. There were more disciples. He called 12 of them to himself. That's the first thing that you're to notice. Disciples are followers or students and the, um, the disciples had been following Jesus maybe as much as half of his public ministry, a year and a half or so, and they had been his students. They had been there just hanging on every word, waiting to, to uh, get more from Jesus. And so he called the students to himself, and then he sent them. 
That's what apostle means. Apostle means sent one. And so there is this transition from the consumer, the one who's waiting to get something from Jesus, to the one who is joining Jesus in mission and being sent out in ministry. And that's represented by the change in terminology there from the 12 disciples to the 12 apostles, from the 12 students to the 12 sent ones. Well, 12 is reiterated as well. What is, is 12 significant? I mean, how, in other words, that's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? How could you look at the number 12 there and say, ah, he could have picked any old number? I can't imagine that he would have picked any old number because we've seen 12 before, haven't we? <laughs> 12 is, of course, the number of the children of Israel, the tribes of Israel. And it appears to me that what Jesus is doing in, in um, collecting 12 and commissioning 12 is that he is uh, communicating that what he is doing in this kingdom is an extension of what God has been doing all along. That these 12 apostles now are going to be carrying out his kingdom ministry, doing, in effect, what God had been doing through Israel all along. And so Jesus is not, he doesn't want people to think he's doing some arbitrary new thing that he just thought of, but rather he is continuing the ministry that um, God had begun uh, with Abraham, which was a ministry, by the way, to bless all the nations of the earth. And of course, uh, Israel, on the one hand, failed at that mission, didn't they? And they were uh, taken into captivity after rebelling against God. But here you have Jesus saying, no, 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 I'm going to identify with that mission and those 12. And he, and he does that by picking the number 12 here. Because clearly there were more disciples to choose from than just a dozen. And so here are the 12. We're introduced now um, well into the ministry of Jesus, well into the book of Matthew. We're introduced to the 12. Now it's really tempting to just do a little bit of biography and all these guys. Um, but I'm going to try to limit myself to what Matthew himself gives us. Because you'll notice that there isn't a lot. There's just a list of guys here. Except for a few um, uh, a few descriptions and I think those editorial comments that Matthew gives us are exactly what Matthew wants us to have I mean some of the descriptors are are simple right um, Andrew is uh, Peter's brother John is James's brother they want to tell you who's um, Somebody's dad is, and some, there's some stuff like that. Basically, so we don't get mixed up with the guys, right? Here, here's how we know. Here's their last name. 
It's not very complicated, except for a few. The ones that aren't that way are the ones that Matthew, I think, wants to draw attention to. And so we see the, uh, we see the first one right at the beginning, and then we see one at the end, and, and they're, they're bookended with uh, some special comments about the, um, the Simon at the beginning and Judas at the end. And it's the beginning comments and the end comments that take a look to the future, which is kind of interesting. Because Simon was renamed Peter. He gets two names there in the list. And Matthew tells us who he would become. Starts off first, Simon. Simon's going to have the preeminence. He's going to be the... um, the leader, you might say, and Matthew acknowledges that right up front. (laughs) It's likely that Peter was older than uh, many of the other disciples. Uh, If you remember the text that we used at Easter last week, he was slower than at least one of the disciples. Um, But nonetheless, Peter is first. And he's first in pretty much every list. He's first Uh, and really gets the most action in all of the Gospels. Each of the Gospels uh, really points to Simon Peter as the the one who is the leader and the preeminent one in the story. And so that's how he begins. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Then last, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. See the editorial comment there? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as funny or not, because we're in chapter 10. The betrayal doesn't happen for, what, another 17 or 16 chapters. And in fact, if you're reading this for the first time and have no idea what betrayal is, this could be confusing. But essentially, there's a betrayal coming, and we know that from this description of Judas. Turns out, really, the gospel writers are pretty uniform. Uh, They introduce Jesus or excuse me, every time they introduce Judas, they introduce him in relation to the betrayal. And I want you to think about that, though. What if, what if there were 12 of you? I mean, that's about the size of a football team. That's, there, that's not very many people. And you spend a year and a half together following Jesus, you're on mission here together, you're doing what uh, Jesus wants you to do, you recognize yourself now as those who are going to carry the baton, and one of you turns Jesus over to the authorities. I mean, there is no question that the disciples were bitter 
<laughs> toward Judas. And they should have been. He was responsible for betraying Jesus to Roman authorities. And in some respect, his role with the 12 was as central to God's plan of redemption as any one of them. But Judas betrayed him. That's what Matthew wants us to know. He wants us to know the future, that, that Peter was going to be first, and the future that Judas was going to betray him. And certainly, Jesus uses people differently. Some people he makes prominent. He calls people to himself, and they betray him even now. There are people who look to the rest, who look just like the rest of us, don't they? And one day, who knows, they may betray Jesus. They won't betray him in such a serious way, of course. But nonetheless, not everyone is what they seem. Well, Matthew wants, or Matthew wants us to know about the future of Peter and the future of James. And then there are a couple comments in here, besides the family comments, that are past-oriented, that turn around and look in the rearview mirror. And the first one of those is Matthew's description of himself. He calls himself Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, I, I think that is, that's just marvelous. Because he wants us to know, he wants to be remembered as the one who was the tax collector. I don't think it's because he's proud of it. I think that his radical transformation is something that he will always remember. In the training of the twelve, A.B. Bruce says that the notable thing about the call of Matthew was Jesus' utter disregard for the maxims of worldly wisdom. A publican disciple, he says, much more a publican apostle. Publican is just another word for tax collector. A publican apostle could not fail to be a stumbling block to Jewish prejudice and therefore to be, for the time at least, a source of weakness rather than strength. Yet Jesus had no fear of the drawbacks arising out of the external connections or the past history of true believers. But it was entirely indifferent, he says, to men's antecedents. We don't use the word antecedents very much anymore. But Jesus was entirely indifferent to people's prior lives. Let that sink in for a moment. Because Matthew wants you to notice this. Matthew's past should have been a deterrent for Jesus to include him, but it wasn't. Now, 
Now, I just want you to know this. Your past should be a deterrent for Jesus to include you. But it won't be. I mean, how many times have you thought, if, if Jesus, I mean, if Jesus really knew me, if, if they really knew me, surely he wouldn't want me. You know what? Your past doesn't deter Jesus from including you. In fact, there, there are a few things I want you to make sure you don't miss here. Your past will not prevent you from following Jesus. What is in the past, Jesus knows about, and he's inviting you today to join him, just like he did Matthew. Number two, your past might be, just might be, specially used by Jesus in the carrying out of his mission. Think about that. Matthew, Matthew had a well-paying job where he had to pay attention to detail, and he was the one that wrote the first gospel here. In other words, it was the past of Matthew that Jesus used. Uh, and you are enjoying right now, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, you are enjoying the product of the past that Matthew brought in to his discipleship with Jesus. And then the third thing I want you to think about with respect to your past is this. Your past should, and it does for Matthew, I think, your past should help you marvel that Jesus includes you. I think that's why Matthew writes, Matthew, the tax collector. Because he never got over the fact that Jesus included him. And I hope that you remember enough of your past so that you marvel as well. Well, there's somebody else in this team that has a past as well. And it's another Simon. Okay, there's Simon who was renamed Peter, but there's a second Simon. Simon the Canaanian. Now, if you look at that very much, you'll think there are a lot of vowels. I mean, you'd do pretty well with that word if you bought an A on um, Wheel of Fortune, but it's not what you think it is. See, we're, we're familiar with a Bible where there are Canaanites, aren't we? And they went to the land of Canaan, and we think that this is some geographical deal here with Simon. But it's not. You'll note, if you were to look carefully, that it's spelled differently. This is not a geographical designation of where Simon's from. Rather, this is a political designation. He is Simon, who is of the party of the Canaanians. Another translation of that, and you would see this other places, uh, or in other translations, is Simon the Zealot. And the Zealot isn't just describing his personality. The Zealots actually were a political party. 
their political party which rose in rebellion under Judas because of the taxation that Rome had put the Jews under. In other words, it was taxation that gave rise to this political party of the Zealots that sought to overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel because, I'm going to say this again, because of taxation. And where did he, where did he end up? On the same team as Matthew, the tax collector. That was a bad idea. Imagine, you're going to build a team? You're going to put those two together? That is a combustible mixture. I mean, it would be, it would be similar to you stacking your team with a proud boy and a Black Lives Matter supporter. Anybody that thinks about that would think, that is not going to work. Yet, Jesus included them both, didn't he? I think it should go without mentioning, but I'm going to mention it anyway. That the kingdom of heaven is bigger than the ideology that says um, the promise of Rome is worth selling out for. That's what Matthew believed. The kingdom of heaven is bigger than the ideology that says liberation from Rome is the only way to live. In other words, Jesus was calling them to something bigger and better than their political ideologies. And Jesus is calling disciples today to something bigger and better than political ideologies. Jesus is calling us to something better than Christian nationalism or some intersectional theory. The gospel of the kingdom is sufficient, it's sufficient to overthrow those two people and their political partisanship to make them surrender their ideologies that would keep them apart so that they might come together in submission to Jesus. For it said that in the past couple years, people and we know this, right? People quit their church for political reasons, but few quit their politics for church reasons. And I can say that Matthew and Simon the Canaanian quit their politics for Jesus' reasons. They got it that Jesus was more important than their politics. 
In Simon and Matthew, you have two opposite extremes. A tax gatherer and a tax hater. The unpatriotic Jew who degraded himself by becoming a servant of the alien ruler and the Jewish patriot who chafed under the foreign yoke and signed on for emancipation. The choice of putting those two on this team was not accidental, but intended by Jesus to be a picture of the church in miniature. The beauty of the church of Jesus is not that we're all the same. It's not that we all um, believe the same, vote the same, think the same, have the same education, the same uh, racial or ethnic background. The beauty of the church is that Jesus is more than those things and provides a stronger reason to be together than those things do to be, for us to be apart. So yes, Matthew did want us to notice that he was a tax collector and that Simon was a tax revolter. And those really are the editorial comments that Matthew gives us. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you now one other thing to think about. Can you recite this list without looking at it? Could you get all 12? How many could you actually get? I mean, there might be a few of us could get 12, but I would struggle to get 12. And that's why I didn't do a biography on everybody. That's what I want you to notice. That many of these 12 are no names, basically. We don't know anything about them. Some of them only get it one line. Some of them don't even get that in the entire Bible. Yet, they're included on Jesus' team. And the church is built on the apostles. That's these guys. And we don't know anything about some of them. I hope that that's an encouragement to you. That yes, in fact, Jesus takes no names he takes people that history will forget. And he makes a church out of them. And he sends them on his mission. And just like Matthew and Simon the Zealot remind us that our past is not the limiting factor, so also the relative anonymity of some of these men encourages me a ton that God does not need extraordinary people with which to build his kingdom. It's just looking at this list, it's not the altogether um, beautiful, um, educated, rich people that Jesus calls. Instead, he calls this group of people. I mean, there's probably nobody who looked at this list, who knew these guys and didn't scratch their head and say, what did he see in them? And that's my point. I think it's safe to say too <clears throat> that people would look at the island of misfit toys that is the church of Jesus Christ and say, 
What does he see in them? We need to be reminded every now and then, don't we? That Jesus doesn't look at people the way that we do. Thankfully, he doesn't look at me the way that other people do either. So Jesus called these first disciples and turned them into apostles and sent them out. He made students into sent ones. And he gave them authority to carry out his mission. And I couldn't, I couldn't talk about this and stop here, though. This is not a history lesson, per se. Because one of the things that you have to notice and I hope it's clicking in the back of your mind already, is that Jesus sends us. He gives us the same disciple-making ministry that he had. He sends us into the same harvest that he said was plentiful and that we should pray for. And he assures us that he is with us in all of his authority. Just like these 12 were an immediate extension of Jesus' ministry, so today his church is the extension of his ministry in the world. This is how Matthew says it at the end of his gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. You have to notice, don't you? that the commissioning comes with the authority of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What was this big moment for Jesus in choosing the 12? Now, I would say, land squarely on us. And the question comes before us. Are you going to be a religious consumer? Or are you going to be a producer, a disciple maker? Just like Jesus passed the baton to the disciples in Matthew 10, so he passes it to us. And so the question is, will you take up the race? But yes, will you take up the race and take the baton from Jesus? But will you be a disciple of Jesus who makes other disciples? Will you pass that baton on? That's what's happening in Matthew 28. It's not merely about us being students. It's about us being sent ones. It's not about us getting stuff for ourselves from Jesus, but about making sure that someone else gets it for them so that they, in turn, can give it away as well. And that is what the mission of Jesus is about that began here in Matthew chapter 10 with a bunch of no-name disciples who are a little bit like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you 
keep us from overestimating ourselves and underestimating Jesus. Thank you for including these people with their problems so that we might recognize that you can include us with our problems. And Lord, would you send us out, even this very day, into your harvest, into the mission field that you have for us. And would you encourage us, I pray in Christ's name.